sharing with us. If you are watching by means of Facebook and you were tuned in uh, at the usual start time, you probably got booted out and hope, hopefully you're back in. But I think we've got it working normally now. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. Uh, this is a section where Paul is discussing things sacrificed to idols, and he's warning the Corinthians about idolatry, and he's going to turn back to the Old Testament Israelites uh, to use them as, a, as an object lesson. But um, there are four things that, that we want to end up practically getting out of this. One is we learn something about what the Bible says about whether or not you can lose your salvation. There's a doctrine that is taught in many evangelical circles today, once saved, always saved, and we will see that's not true in this text. Number two, uh, there's a lesson to get out of this, and, and it is that, just like the Israelites in the wilderness faced various circumstances and trials that uh, led them to sin, although they didn't have to sin, we're going to face circumstances in our lives and trials that uh, could... Um, be opportunities for us to choose to sin, to do the wrong thing. And, and this passage is going to say there's always a way of escape. And then number three is simply the warnings uh, against idolatry in this text. And, and we'll talk a bit about how that's applicable. Today. And finally, finally, the idea that there is demonic, there is satanic influence. We don't have to get all hocus pocus about it. But the fact is there is a spiritual war going on and spiritual forces are at work in this spiritual war. And we need to uh, see the conflicts that we have in life in that light, in that context. So that's the idea. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 8 just uh, briefly to um, look at the overall context. So Chase, if you would, uh, get us set the, set the tone for us. E, Chase, Joe, either one of you. In this section in 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to a letter that he's gotten from the Corinthians, right? Yeah, and from the best I can tell, Paul will, in the first half of the book, you know, he's got his agenda. He's got the things he wants to get to them about, things he's heard through others, different things he wants to talk to them about that he sees as a problem. And then in the latter half of the book, starting in chapter 7, he'll start off a few of the chapters with, now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And then over in chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and he'll do that again. Uh, I believe in chapter, um, in chapter, what is it? Chapter 12. And then again in chapter 16. Yeah. Uh, good. So kind of heading it off on maybe some things that they were wondering about. Right. And so you see these discrete topics uh, about marriage in chapter seven, about things sacrificed to idols in chapters eight and following about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, uh, about the collection for the saints in chapter 16. And, and really even, I think we see a hint of that kind of an idea in chapter 15 where he ends up talking about the resurrection. And, and so the reason to point that out is simply for us to notice that there is a flow in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and, and I'm sorry, 8, 9, and 10, but I've really become more and more uh, swayed by the thought that chapter 11 is, um, uh, is part of this discussion of things sacrificed to idols. Um, but the flow works this way. In chapter 8, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and he spends the next 13 verses, basically chapter 8, saying, you guys have a bad attitude. Uh, you're, not, you're all puffed up by your knowledge that the idol is nothing, and you're not thinking anything about the effect that your actions are having on your brethren newly converted out of paganism when you go down and participate in the idol feast at the temple. 
So he does, before he even gets around to saying it's just wrong to do that, he first of all challenges their attitude. And he says, you need to be willing to give up some things for the sake of others. Chapter 9 is largely Paul saying, look at my example, the things I have given up that I had a right to. For example, Paul says, I, I have a right to be supported in preaching the gospel, but I didn't take money from you because I was concerned about how it, my doing so might affect you. And so that's kind of the argument in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he's going to come back and he's going to address the subject of participating in the idol feast head on. And that's where we want to start. And actually, we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 24. But let's just set the stage a little bit. An idol feast. What practically goes on in an idol feast? Well, um, they're going to be sacrificing idols, obviously. Uh, they're going to, or sacrificing idols, sacrificing meat, sacrificing animals, um, and then eating the meat as a ritual to the gods. That's the key right there. Yeah. It's not just where some priest kills an animal and burns it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an occasion where everybody gets a big meal, a big feast where, yes, some of it is sacrificed to the god, but people eat a whole bunch of it, and thus they are united with the god is the idea. And so you can imagine that somebody might see this as a wonderful opportunity to get a great meal. And uh, there would be other reasons they would want to participate in the idol feast. And the Corinthians seem to have had the attitude, or some of them, that, hey, look, if I know the idol's nothing, if I know that it's meaningless, then what's the harm if I go down and, and participate in the feast? And so Paul has said in chapter 8, you're, you've got a self-centered focus there. And in chapter 10, he's going to say you can't do that. And so let's start in 9.24. Joe, you want to read a little bit? Get us uh, through the last few verses of chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Chapter 9 and verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but for we an, imper an imperishable. Thus I, uh, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he set the tone of self-control, of not just doing what you want to do. If you're going to, to receive the crown of life, you're going to have to live this life, bringing your desires, your body into subjection. Um, and, and it was a self-indulgent thing when the Corinthians would want to go down and participate in the idol feast. So then we come to chapter 10 and verse 1, and he says, I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Um, so, okay, uh, first of all, it's interesting. He says, our fathers... Many in the church at Corinth were Gentiles. In fact, that's kind of the point of chapter 8, that, that many in the church there had just come out of pagan idolatry. So do you find it interesting that he says, our fathers? Well, say yes. Say you do find that interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting, Jeff. <laughs> but if we think about it, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about that the fact that Abraham... Uh, was uh, reckoned as righteous before he was circumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, not only those of the circumcision, but also not only those of the circumcision who walk in the steps of his faith, but also those of the uncircumcision. 
So it's, it's entirely appropriate, though writing to Gentile Christians, that he speak of our fathers, going back to the Old Testament Jews. Well, he says uh, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Obviously, a reference to what? Uh, to the walking out of Egypt and walking through the Red Sea. Yeah. Uh, why does he call it baptism? I think the idea, and again, of course, our word baptized is a, is a transliterated word from the Greek baptizo. The idea is to be immersed, so to be covered. And so they, they were with walls on both sides of them. You know, as they went through, they were covered in a way as they passed through into the wilderness and on into the promised land. And yeah, so, this surrounded and that, and by a wall. Way. I'm sorry, what was the last thing you said? That's it. Go ahead. Yeah, so they're, sw- <laughs> they're surrounded by a wall of water on either side, and Paul also mentions the cloud. Uh, which would be water overhead. So in a sense, they are buried in the water, even though they're not touching the water. But but okay, so we can see why you might poetically or metaphorically or something refer to it as being baptized, uh, what happened to the Israelites. But what would be the point in doing that? What would be the point in referring to the Israelites as baptized? Well, at that point, when they cross through the Red Sea, they're leaving... Uh, uh, slavery, and this is the beginning of their journey for, for freedom, much like the New Testament describes us leaving the uh, slavery of sin and being baptized into Christ to begin our journey of spiritual freedom. Exactly. Um, in, in fact, in the story in Exodus chapter 14, when it describes the Israelites coming through the sea, I think it's verse 31, after it describes all of that, it says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. That was the point at which they were saved. They were set free from their, um, in, their enslavement to the uh, Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Well, and Paul is going to mention in chapter 12, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that uh, verse 13, he says, we were all baptized into one body. So, So what he's doing is, he is creating a parallel between the experience of the Israelites and the experience of the Corinthians. Uh, you were baptized, you Corinthians were. Well, the Israelites were baptized. And then in verse 4, he's going to say, or verse 3 and 4, he's going to say, and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. Well, they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So what's the reference to there? Eating the same spiritual food, he's referring back to the manna, right? Yeah, sure. The manna and the spiritual drink. Uh, the water the that rock came that was the rock miraculously in Exodus 17 and Numbers uh, 20. Okay, so, but again, then the next question is, why would he choose to refer to the Israelites' experience with manna, a food from God, uh, commanded by God, and the water from the rock. Why would he choose to refer back to those things? Is it possible that they felt some disconnect from some of their Jewish brethren? Uh, and so maybe this was an attempt at, at making them feel more part of the Lord and God and the history of his people. In a way, I think he's, again, just like it was with baptism, he's, he is creating a parallel, points of connection between the experience of the Israelites and that of the, the Corinthians. In, in the, the next chapter, in chapter 11, he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And there is a, a food and a drink in the Lord's Supper. And so by referring to these things, he's saying, look, 
you Corinthians were baptized and you eat the Lord's Supper, well, guess what? The Old Testament Israelites were baptized and they had a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. And then comes the but. And the but is, verse 5 of chapter 10, Howbeit with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And you know the story, of course, what happened to most of the Israelites who were out there in the wilderness, uh, having come through the Red Sea, baptized, and who had the spiritual food and spiritual drink, manna and water from a rock. What happened to most of those Israelites? They were they died. They were killed. They didn't get to make it to the promised land because of their disobedience. Yeah, over the 40 years of wandering, everybody 20 years old or older died in the wilderness, didn't get to go to the promised land. And so now, having established the parallel of the points of connection with the Corinthians, he can say in verse uh, 11 and 12, now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. The point being, we've drawn the parallels. You're like the Old Testament Israelites. You were baptized. You eat the Lord's Supper. You think you've got it made? Well, guess what? They were baptized. They had a spiritual food and spiritual drink, but many of them did not make it to their reward. So you'd better listen up, and you'd better get your act together and live a life of self-control like the athlete training for the, to receive the crown. You had better live your life in such a way that you make it to the promised land. In between verse 5 and verse uh, 11, Paul gives five examples of failure on the part of the Israelites who had been baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea and who ate a spiritual food and drank a spiritual drink. He gives five examples of failure on their part, um, and, and those things have some bearing on what he is writing to the Corinthians. He's going to talk about idolatry. Well, that's what he's warning the Corinthians about. He's going to talk about fornication. Well, that's what he's warning the Corinthians about in chapter 6. He's going to talk about lusting after evil things. Well, it's that kind of desire that leads the Corinthians to want to participate in the idol feast and to commit fornication. So he's pulling out examples of bad behavior on the part of the Israelites to say, when you Corinthians do these things, you're going to end up not making it to your promised land just like the Israelites did. Does that, does that seem to flow? Yep, I think so. Joe, you're saying something, but we can't hear you. You are muted. Uh, a lot of people like me better that way. Um, uh, so just a, a one not quick... Us. Uh, we want to hear you. One quick thought here. Um, maybe if I was just the video was off. Um, uh does do you perceive Paul to be? I, I don't know that we would use the word sarcasm, but the the language that he uses to say, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Uh, I mean, that is that's about the understatement of the Bible um, to to say to use the word most there. Um, you know, it's ninety nine point, and I forget how many nines percent. Uh, uh, when, when we look at only two out of that group uh, of, the, uh, of the census that, that came through, I, I think by just saying that, but with most of them, it ought to cause the reader to ponder, this is, these, these uh, warnings that he's about to give are extremely serious. They caused nearly every Israelite to, uh, to not make it to the promised land. Yeah. Yeah, that should, it should make it should, it should weigh on the hearts of the Corinthians. Uh oh, whoa, huh, 
We better take this seriously. So let's look at these five examples of failure that Paul mentions. The first one is in verse six. Uh, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So that's a reference to an incident in the wilderness. Which incident? What passage in the Old Testament do we need to turn to to learn about this incident? We would think mainly of Numbers, the 11th chapter, right? Yep. I'm going I'm to read about this from the 106th Psalm, and then if one of you would just briefly describe what happened in Numbers, the 11th chapter. So I'm going to read from it in the 106th Psalm, and I'm going to start in verse uh, 6, just to mention the 106th Psalm says, we have sinned like our fathers. Uh, so it's interesting. The 106th Psalm, I don't know when it was written, but it was written between the time of, of the wilderness and the first century when Paul's writing the, the Corinthian letter. And there in the Psalm, the writer was going back to the example of the Israelites in the wilderness and saying the people of his day were uh, wrongly following the example of the Israelites. And I'm going to now come down to verse 13, Psalm 106, verse 13. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness. Uh, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, lusted after evil things, craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request and sent a wasting disease among them. All right. So what was the story in chapter 11 of Numbers? So the people around, the people that had come out of the uh, Egyptian bondage who were not a part of Abraham's descendants had begun complaining uh, back in chapter 11 and in verse 4. They're called the mixed multitude. Um, and as they begin to complain, that uh, dissatisfaction infiltrates amongst the Israelites and they begin to complain and, and cry to, to, to God and to Moses because they don't have the, the luxuries that they had back in Egypt any longer. Uh, they begin to, to moan, uh, remembering so fondly uh, how full their tables were uh, back, back in Egypt. Of course, they are completely misremembering that, um, uh, but nevertheless, they are thinking about all of the things that they had, Numbers 11 and verse 5. And so while they are complaining about that, God hears them, and uh, kind of fast-forwarding to the end of that chapter then, uh, God sends quail into the, the camp, and the people descend upon the quail uh, and gather it up and begin chewing the meat. And as they are doing that, God strikes them with a great plague, Numbers eleven thirty three, And uh, so because of that, it talks about how in eleven thirty four, 34, uh, that's where they buried the people uh, because they had yielded to craving. Uh, the language in the Psalms says he gave them their desire. And when you look at Numbers, the 11th chapter, there is that language where God says, okay, I'll, I'll give you what you're asking for. And I'm going to turn over there and see what verse it is real quickly. Uh, Numbers, the 11th chapter, and it's going to be in verse uh, 19 or verse 18. Say to the people, consequently yourselves, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. You shall eat meat for you've wept in the ears of the Lord saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. 
Um, for we well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor 10 days, nor 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. You just hear God's frustration with this people whining, we want meat to eat. We want meat to eat. Say, I'm going to give it to you till it comes out to you. So he gave them their desire. All right. So that's the reference. So, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, maybe make another connection here. And uh, uh, maybe you don't uh, agree with this, but I'll throw it out as a, as a possibility. Um, so uh, you quoted, uh, or you referenced Psalm 106. Um, that seems to me that Psalm 106 was given by David at the time that the ark was being brought into the tabernacle in 1 Chronicles 16. Uh, 1 Chronicles 16 quotes the first verse and the last two verses of Psalm 106. So maybe not all of it belongs then, but it seems like that would be a logical place for it. If that's the case, then as the Jews are recognizing this fellowship with God, the ark being brought into uh, the, the tabernacle, into Jerusalem, again, it's this sense of coming into a covenant, coming into a, a fellowship with God that David hearkens back, their, their minds back to don't give in to this craving. And then Paul is doing a very similar thing for the Corinthians uh, there in First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 10, what we were beginning with. I had Joe. I had I had forgotten the connection with First Chronicles. I know in in the, some of the passages in the Chronicles where we see some of these Psalms, we are seeing the same Psalm that we see over in the Book of Psalms. Um, and I I did is it, it, I right now it's not coming to mind. Is the whole first half of Psalm one hundred six quoted in First Chronicles, or is it just uh, no? So uh, in First uh, First Chronicles sixteen, beginning in verse eight, he starts quoting Psalm one hundred five, uh-huh. and, and then in verse twenty three, he begins to quote Psalm ninety six. Okay, and then verse thirty four is the same as Psalm one hundred six in verse one, yep. and uh, verse thirty five is the same as Psalm one hundred six forty seven and forty eight. Okay, all right. All right, so that might put it in the time of David. Then I see, I see the point you're getting at there. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and 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 it it almost doesn't matter exactly, except that uh, again, it's this point of coming into fellowship with God, and we need to take that so serious. Yeah. Good. So then, all right. So that's the first failure of the Israelites that Paul itemizes in First Corinthians ten. The second one is in verse uh, seven of First Corinthians ten. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. And this time he quotes verbatim from the context in the Old Testament where this was originally described. Neither be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What passage is he quoting? What incident is he describing? That comes from Exodus 32. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, the people get anxious and uh, they talk Aaron into making a golden calf for them, and uh, they end up worshiping it. And over in Exodus 32, starting in verse 4, uh, it says, He took the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf, and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day, this is verse 6 of, of Exodus 32, the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink 
and rose up to play. So there is the reference that we get from first Corinthians 10. So this is referencing a horrible time in Israel's history when Moses is up on the mountain, getting the commandments from the Lord that they are to abide by that will end up aiding them in their efforts to get to the promised land. And uh, when Moses comes back down, he is pretty unhappy about that. When it says they, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play back in Exodus 32, what do you mean? Rose up to play Monopoly, uh, volleyball? What, what's the picture that you see there? What I, what I normally picture is them kind of playing with the idol and, and dancing around it and just kind of taking things easy now that the, 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 the God is there. Uh, that's normally what comes to my mind. So, so I wonder mind? if it's a euphemism for immorality also. Um, I, it, it certainly would not be out of character with ancient peoples in their idolatrous rights to be engaged in a lot of, of lewd sensual conduct. And so what you see here in these first two incidents that are, that are mentioned are uh, they have their desires. They want meat. <laughs> and they're being driven by those. And then idolatry and, and immoral conduct perhaps associated with idolatry. And then we come to the third incident that Paul mentions, the third failure of the Israelites in the wilderness. And it's in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed, fell in one day, three and 20,000. What are we talking about there? What's the incident in the Old Testament? That one's Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25. And, and again, I'm going to read the description of this. Several of these failures, these incidents that Paul is mentioning, all, four of them, in fact, four of the five of them, are described in the 106th Psalm. So I'm going to go back to the 106th Psalm. And oh, wait. Uh, yes, this is, this is one that's there. I'm going to go back to the 106th Psalm. And, and I'm going to also read. Also, four, four out of the five happen in Numbers. Yeah. So I'm going to read the section in the 106th Psalm, verse 28 and following. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed. All right, so the story is originally in Numbers 25. It's very clear this is the story alluded to in, in the 106th Psalm, and becomes clear this is the story Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 10. What's the story? So in Numbers 20, uh, in 20, Numbers 25, where he's uh, talking about, um, is sort of the conclusion to the story of Balaam and the donkey. That's what is more famously known as that text. Um, uh, but it's really about uh, Balaam giving counsel to Balak, the king of Moab, um, after he's tried to curse the Israelites, essentially he comes back. We don't have the exact words, but it'll be along the lines of, like, you can't curse God's people, but they can curse themselves if they engage in things that God doesn't approve of. And so Moab, uh, Balak, king of Moab, sends his women down there. They practice sexual morality with the Israelites. And uh, that's the... Uh, that's a tipping point for God. He sends this plague through the land um, to strike them for their immorality with the uh, Moabite or Midianite women. And, and, the, and the enticement, the seduction, the, the fornication was to lead them uh, into idolatrous practices. And, um, and you see the reference to Baal of 
Peor in Numbers 25 and verse 3, and you see the description of Phineas in um, verse, um, well, where is it? Uh, verse 7, who goes in and runs to a, an Israelite man and a Midianite woman who were joined. He runs them through with a spear, and, and God approved of Phineas is standing up in opposition to this, uh, this fornication and idolatry on this occasion. It's interesting, we have fornication and idolatry. What was Paul warning against in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and also in 1 Corinthians 7? Fornication and fornication. idolatry. And, and what's he warning against here in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10? Idolatry. And so you, you start to realize, oh, okay, these examples are very relevant. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And by the way, Paul mentions 23,000 who died in Numbers, the 25th chapter, verse 9, 24,000 died. And sometimes this is one of those places where people, spoke, people focus more on the apparent contradiction than upon the obvious similarities. Obviously, Paul's referring to this story, but then why does it say 24,000 died in chapter 25 of Numbers, but in 1 Corinthians it says 23,000? And there are various possible explanations for that. Um, we're not going to take time today to go through all the possible explanations. Um, if we know there are possible explanations, I don't know that we need to know which is the explanation. This is the story that's being alluded to. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 9, and we have the fourth failure of the Israelites mentioned. Neither let us make trial of the Lord as some of them made trial and perished by the serpents. It's very easy to spot the Old Testament story being alluded to here. What is it? That's what takes place in Numbers 21. Uh, this is shortly after uh, Israel was captured by the king of Arad. They end up crying out to God. God delivers them. And they set out from Mount Hor in Numbers 21 in verse 4 by way of the Red Sea. And it says they were going to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And what and did they it, complain specifically about? Uh, in fact, at the end of verse five, uh, or in verse five, they say, "Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Because there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food." Referring to the manna. And yeah. So, so again, uh, it's kind of similar to Numbers eleven, where they were they just had their desires and they weren't satisfied with God's provision, and and that's at that's at the root of some of the Corinthians' problem. And, they have their desires, fornication. They're not satisfied with God's provision, sexual relations within marriage. Um, they have their desires. They want to go down to the idol feast and participate in that big feast and get that meal. Um, so what happened in Numbers, uh, the 21st chapter? What did God do about that? So God sends fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And so then Moses, they come to Moses saying, you know, we've sinned. Um, Moses intercedes for the people. But God, in turn, says to Moses, make this fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And so that, that's exactly what goes on. And, of course, that goes on to foreshadow Christ, who is the likeness of the sin that's biting us and bringing death. Our sins laid on Christ, to whom we look, and we can be saved from the death. Uh, this result of sin. So it's a foreshadowing of the Christ. But for Paul's purposes in 1 Corinthians 10, he doesn't develop that idea. He's simply focusing upon the failure of the Israelites and their, their 
not being like the athlete who is exercising self-control in order to, to achieve the desired goal. And uh, so then we come back to 1 Corinthians 10, and we have the fifth failure that Paul itemizes. And this is in verse 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them murmured and perished by the destroyer. And of course, that's a reference to number 16. What happened in number 16? Number 16 is where you have uh, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Um, uh, they uh, seek to overthrow Moses and Aaron, um, claiming that they have as much right to leadership as, as Moses and Aaron did, um, and that uh, they were going to um, really uh, do away with Moses and Aaron, essentially. They were going to reject them. And for the most part, the people followed along with them as well. Yep. All right. Now, then after itemizing those, Paul says in verse 11, these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So he says two things there. When it happened, God dealt with it in the way that he did, having in mind a lesson for generations to come. And secondly, it was written down as a lesson for ages to come. So Paul then makes the application in the ages to come to the first century Christians. And today, two, two, two millennia later, it's still a lesson for us today. And the lessons that we want to get out of this, and we're going to have only about eight minutes to go here. So we only have about two minutes for each of these points. Number one, you can, you can fall away. You can lose your salvation. So that's stated. Let's get verse 12. Um, verse uh, 12. Just read verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. How, how can someone believe, as is taught in, in some denominations today, that you cannot lose your salvation? What would you say about this passage if you believe you cannot lose your salvation? Well, I believe you would say they were never saved in the first place. So they were never saved in the first place. But Paul is writing to the church of God at Corinth. And, and if we go back to the first uh, chapter and see the description of them. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. And of course, oh, it, go ahead. Yeah, even in chapter 6, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus yes. Christ. And he's warning these various, the very point of this is, look, you people who've been washed, sanctified, justified, don't make the mistake that the Israelites did. And, uh, and Go ahead. Where, where we began reading in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul even includes himself in that. He does. He could become disqualified. Excellent point. The second point we want to get out of this is we are going to face difficult circumstances. And by difficult, I mean circumstances in which we may want to choose to do the wrong thing because it will be hard to choose the right thing. Uh, we may feel like we are suffering. The Israelites felt like they were suffering in the wilderness. Uh, but here's the passage, verse 13. There's no temptation, or you could translate that, no trial. Um, there's no temptation, no trial taken you, but such as man can bear. In other words, you don't have to do the wrong thing in any given instance. Um, and then he says, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, um, but will with the temptation make also the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So practically speaking, what, what do we get out of that? 
in an illustration I often like to use uh, because it's so relevant in the United States, Jeff, when they built the building there at Exton and the city planners came through and the, the code guys came through, what did they demand that you all put up above all the exits? Oh, exit signs. In fact, years after that, they came back and said we had to have Braille exit signs. Wow. And you know, something else I've noticed in the city of Exton at a couple of the restaurants I've been in is they, in fact, also have exit signs at the floor mm -hmm. um, of many of the, the exits in some of the public places that I've been in in Exton. Uh, and the reason for that is when a fire breaks out, smoke rises. And if people are hitting the floor to crawl out, they're going to be able to see the exit sign and they're going to know their way out. And so the Lord is saying, or Paul is saying something very similar about the Lord. When we go through trials, there are exits. We just need to look for the exit signs. Uh, Can you imagine in a fire, somebody is, is overwhelmed by the smoke and they can't see and it's hot and it's dark. And somebody says, escape, get out of this. And they say, but it's so hard. I don't want to have to crawl through the smoke where I can't <laughs> see where I'm going. <laughs> no, sin is, sin is fatal. Sin is destructive. Get out of it. Um, but, you know, I, I often think in connection with this passage, Lot. Lot, in Genesis, the 19th chapter, had some guests come his way. And in the, in the Middle East, there was just this strong ethos of you are responsible for your guests. When you see a stranger and he needs help, you take him into your home, but then you are responsible for his well-being. And uh, so these guests happen to be angels. It's not necessarily relevant to Paul to Lot's behavior, but he takes them into his house and then the men of the city come and they want to abuse these men sexually. They want to have homosexual relations with them. And Lot cannot let that happen. That would be horrible. He needs a way of escape. His choice was to offer his daughters to the men of the city. That, that was the wrong way of escape. And so you may say, well, he was in desperate hoot today. Nobody's going to justify Lot trying to offer his daughters to the, to the women and it's un, uh, to the men of the city. And it's not justifiable, but you can see Lot's mind working. How do I get out of this situation where I would fail my guests? And so what he did was he chose something else that was equally wrong. Uh, in many of our eyes, we'd even say he's even worse. He, he offered his daughters to the men of the city. And, and you may say, well, he was desperate. Here's the thing. Sometimes we don't, we don't, sometimes there's not so much something we can do other than just choose not to do the wrong thing. And that may mean we suffer. And sometimes what we're looking for is an easy way out, a way out where I'm not going to suffer. And, and what we have to do is say, you know what, I may suffer and that may be my way of escape. So Jeff, you, you said that nobody today would accept that um, unfortunately, I have to disagree. Uh, just reading an article this morning of a evidently a famous Hollywood actress that I've never heard her name of, um, uh, but she is successful and multimillionaire, um, and she was shouting out her abortion, and uh, she had had, I think, six years ago, and her claim is that if she had had the child, she would not have become the success and the millionaire and... Wow. live the lifestyle that she is. Wow. And so she sacrificed her child because she didn't see how she could have happiness in this life with the, uh, a child. So wow. uh, I think she yep. literally sacrificed people, her child. Point well taken. Yep. Wow. 
All right, so if we're going to find the way of escape, we're going to have to put our trust in God and God's ways. The third point, idolatry. Idolatry was a problem in Israelites' times. In the Old Testament, it was a problem in the first century. It's becoming an increasing problem today. I tell you what, when we worship, whether we worship wealth or whether we worship a block of wood or a rock, uh, it's idolatry. And the Corinthians were justifying this because they knew that the idol was nothing. And we may tell ourselves, we know that the idol is nothing, but there are idolatrous influences around us and we need to avoid them. But let's quickly get to the last point because we're almost out of time. Paul then comes down in chapter 10, verse 14. He just says, wherefore, my blood flee from idolatry. What he says is you cannot eat the Lord's Supper. You cannot partake of the bread, which is the body of Christ, and have communion with Christ, and partake of the cup, which is the blood, represents the blood of Christ, and have communion with Christ, and then also partake of the idol feast. He reminds them of the Israelites when the Israelites would eat of the, of the, of the sacrifices to God, they, the, the, some of it would be burned in smoke on the altar, and the people would eat some of it, and the priests would eat some of it, and thus they were all united in this. And Paul refers to that as having communion with the altar in verse 18. And his point is not to say that this idol really is something, but his point is when you participate in that idol feast, you are sharing with demons, and you cannot share with demons and also with the Lord. It's got to be one or the other. But that idea that you're sharing with demons is an allusion to the fact that the idolatry in the world at that time was the result of, of the influence of Satan and his angels, his minions, his demons. And what we need to understand is there is a spiritual conflict going on. And when we're talking about sinful things that we have to guard against today, we're actually talking about having to guard against the satanic influence that is at work in the world. Comments? I think you're exactly right, and, and we ought to make the proper applications where we see we, we cannot hold hands with God and hold hands with the devil at the same right. time. Um, and, and, and in these situations that we read about here, um, sometimes what that involves is misremembering the past, the, the good old days, uh, longing for the joys that we used to think we had when really we were wallowing in sin and, and slavery. Well, I wish we had more time to, to elaborate on that point, but we are out of time. So thank you for being with us today. Guys, uh, we will not have this webcast the next two weeks um, with people's schedules and such. So let's just announce that today, uh, that we'll be back, Lord willing, the first Wednesday in the new year. Okay? Very good. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.